भद्रं कर्णे विष्णुयाम देवा भद्रं पश्येमाक्षभीर्यजत्रा स्थिरैरंगैस्तुष्टभागं सस्तनुभि यशेम देवहितैयदायु स्वस्तिन इन्द्रो वृद्धश्रवाह स्वस्तिना भूषा विश्ववेदाह स्वस्तिनस्ताश्यो अरिष्टरेवी स्वस्तिनो ब्रिहस्पतिर्दधातु ओम शांति 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 Now we were towards the end of the second chapter of the Mandukya Karika. Remember the Mandukya Karika has four chapters. So almost towards the end of the second chapter. We had done the 35th verse last time. Right? Um, what are these verses? From verses 35 till the last verse of the second chapter. Yeah, 38. 35, 36, 37, 38. These four are um, very nice, beautiful verses. Remember in the second chapter, Gaurapada, he has shown us what it means to say that the world is an appearance. The central teaching of Advaita Vedanta, that Brahman is the absolute reality. There is one absolute non-dual reality, existence, consciousness, bliss. And the world is an appearance. And you are that absolute reality. Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithya, Jiva Brahmevanapara. Having shown that, in the, especially the second chapter is concerned with what do you mean the world is an appearance? What is the nature of this experience we are having, this world experience? That was analyzed. After all this analysis, now finally the question says, is that what do you do with all this? Where do you go from now, from here? What do you do with this, this knowledge? So four verses on what do you do now? How do you become enlightened? So these four verses, they are, I hesitate to say they are about spiritual practice. They are actually about enlightenment itself. They are not about spiritual practice in the conventional sense. For example, he's not going to tell you here how to worship or how to do uh, social service or selfless works, how to sit and meditate. No, none of them. One must keep in mind that the Mandukya Karika is, is just about the final text, the highest teaching of non-dual Vedanta. All those are on the way to this realization. So even when Gaurapada is going to be a little, in our sense, a little practical, but what practicality is going to talk about is the highest enlightenment, how to become enlightened. How do you use this knowledge to become enlightened? So that's what he's talking about. Otherwise, when I say spiritual practice, if I say that, afterwards you will say that he didn't teach us how to breathe, how to say it. He didn't teach us how to chant mantras and sing songs. Um, no, that's, he's not against any of that. All those are very useful, but they're on the way. And we have long since crossed those lines and we are at, we are at the peak. We are at the peak of the mountain here. Uh, yes. One very important question that I've been meaning to ask this whole time. Do we retain individuality? Um, no. Ultimately, no. 
And yet, yes, nothing of this individuality will be lost. It's like a movie in the, in the, okay, it's like this. You're acting the part of, say, Lady Macbeth in a Shakespeare drama, maybe in the Shakespeare in the summer, you have the Shakespeare in the open out there in the central part. You're acting that part. Now, Lady Macbeth is an individual. But at the same time, it's a fictional individual. You, the actor, you are not really Lady Macbeth. And when you are acting as Lady Macbeth, you know that you are not Lady Macbeth. <laughs> now suppose, somehow you had forgotten who you were, you're such a great actor, that you really thought you were Lady Macbeth, and then you are trapped, and you are suffering, and this terrible tragedy, and then suddenly you come to your senses that, oh, I'm not this, I'm the actor, I'm acting as Lady Macbeth. Okay, now let me ask you, is Lady Macbeth's individuality retained or not? You will say in a vital sense, no. no. You are the actor, you are not Lady Macbeth. And yet, and yet, the story continues, the acting continues, you continue to be that individual for the purposes of the drama. I think that answers the question. But the actor yes. retains the individuality. Not of the character, but the actor, him or herself. Um, in the, the, so don't take the example there. Because in the case of the actor, the actor is an individual. In the example, in any example, actor must be an individual. Acting as another individual, that individuality is falsified. But then the actor's individuality is real in the example. But here in this case, the actor, the ultimately it's an impersonal reality. It's not an individual. This question used to come. People would, um, would ask Swami Vivekananda, Yes, an immortal reality beyond life, beyond birth, beyond death. I'd love to be immortal, but I'd love to be immortal as me, the individual. What you are suggesting is like, uh, I lose my individuality. And he would actually make fun, Vivekananda. He would draw it out. This precious, he would say, individuality. What is it? Where is this individual you're talking about? It's already an illusion. Where is this individual? Is it the same individual who was there 20 years ago? Is it the same individual who was there 50 years ago? Your tastes have changed, your thoughts have changed, your ideas and desires, aspirations have changed. I'm the same person. Are you? Memories have disappeared or have been overwritten. Every day in the night when you go into the dream, you're a different individual. When you go into deep sleep, no individual. Every night you lose the individuality. Yes. Yeah, but what I mean with individuality, like accumulation of all of our lifetime, there must be something, the essence. Do we retain the essence? The essence is what you are not retained. What you accumulate, what you accumulate over lifetime is guaranteed. I'm sorry to say this, is guaranteed to be lost. The whole thing is going to be lost. There's no doubt about it. The body will be lost, your accumulated wealth will be lost, most of the information you've gathered as knowledge will be lost very, very soon. And it will go. And it's not important. We think it's important. It's not. But what we acquired morally... All right. What we acquired... Spiritually, yeah, goes yeah. All out the window? Uh, what we acquired morally, what, what is retained? What is retained after the death of this body? Is your bank account retained? No. I'll tell you what is retained. Is the bank account retained? No. Husband, wife, children, grandchildren? No. House? No. 
dump. <laughs> none, of, none of them are retained. None of them. Memories? Maybe, but we don't, we can't recall them. We can hardly recall our own uh, kindergarten memories anyway, let, let alone the mem memories of our babyhood. So memory is also probably not, nothing, almost nothing is retained. So is nothing retained? Krishna answers this in, in the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, 6th chapter. Arjuna asks, suppose I don't get enlightenment in this life, then all the spiritual practice that I have done till now, is it all lost? I die. And Krishna gives the answer, no, it is not lost. You move on the path of spiritual realization, enlightenment, nothing that you do on this path is lost. So, the moral progress that we make, in Sanskrit they are called samskaras, the traces, the character that we carry from lifetime to lifetime, good and bad. So that definitely is retained. We build on that. Not memories, but tendencies. No, no, no. I, I'm, so, I'm backing up quite a bit now. I've gone halfway down towards base camp here. <laughs> so, so, all that is retained where where is it retained? In the subtle body. Sukshma Sharira, which continues from lifetime to lifetime, and which is different for, for each one of us. But it's different for each one of us. Over lifetimes, we evolve. So, through many experiences, happy and sad, we begin to change. Very little. People ask, wouldn't it be nice if we could remember our past births, we could learn our lessons much faster, and we could change? You, know, you would think that. If I, if I remember that I have been through many births, so I really am not destroyed by birth and death, um, and if I have committed mistakes, I could learn from that. If I forget, then uh, aren't the lessons lost? What do you think? <coughs> we do not learn from memory. It's an interesting thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't commit the same mistake twice in this life. And we, yet we commit it again and again and again, yet we do learn. How do we learn? It's not a change in memory, it's a change in samskara. Samskara means the inherent tendencies, the sum total of which is expressed as our character. And that changes. Every little child in the same family, siblings, they're different. So the, the inherent, inherent character that we get from past births, that changes. And that changes over lifetimes. So it's not that we remember things in our past life, but if we had experiences, maybe with addiction, maybe with, with some problem or the other, we suffered a lot. In this life, somehow we are not, we are not attracted to, to those pathways anymore. We don't know, we don't remember, but it doesn't pull us anymore. We have learned our lesson somewhere deep inside. The memories are not there anymore, but the tendencies are there. If we have done a lot of religion, Spiritual practices in past lives. <coughs> Sri Krishna says that. In the next life, he tells Arjuna, even if you have not attained enlightenment in this life, in the next life what will happen is, this person is reborn in suitable circumstances. Parents are good and pious and uh, virtuous. And says that this person will be swept away by the force of his or her past practices. He says, Riyati avashuapisa. Helplessly you are swept away along the spiritual path. Helplessly, he says. Not consciously. Oh, I memorized up to the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita last time. Let me start with the seventh chapter this this life. No, you won't remember that. But you will take to spiritual life. 
whatever religion you are born into, whatever place, whatever spiritual teachings are available to you there, and those things will become available to you. And you find them. Teachers come, books come, circumstances come in such a way that you are sucked back into that path again. So this is what is carried over from lifetimes. Two things happen. One is our own tendencies along this path, spiritual path, and the universe sort of conspires to give you what you need. So that's what happens. And it's a long journey. But Gaurabhad is much further along. He's not even interested in this. He says, this is what exactly you have to get rid of. This spiritual self which you are building life after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. He says the whole game has to end. That's what he's talking about. Beyond this subtle body with its own tendencies, mixture, the little bundle of tendencies we carry from lifetimes. Beyond this is the real self which we have been talking about all along, which is existence, consciousness, bliss, which you are not building. It's there. It is the reality. It is what you are. It is what you are searching for. But is it different from you and her and him? No. It's one. The subtle, one. the subtle body is different for you and her and him and her. <laughs> Physical bodies are different. Physical bodies are even different for you. Lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. The subtle body is the same. That's what you define as yourself. The individual sentient being. But beyond the individual sentient being is one impersonal reality. That existence, consciousness, bliss we are talking about. And as long as you don't like that idea, you want to stay away from that idea, that that impersonal consciousness, one consciousness, is God to you. But here, again let me point out, we are at the end, we are at the very end of spiritual knowledge. Vedanta literally means the culmination of all spirituality. And this book is the culmination of Vedanta. Here it is telling you, you are that which you are searching for. The God you are searching for. That absolute reality you are searching for, you are that. Not this person that you think yourself to be. Then what will happen at the end of it? It's not that this person will become free. You, the impersonal reality, you become free of the person. You become free of what you consider yourself to be. Along with all the multi-lives inherited, you know, um, treasury of spiritual tendencies, all of that, all those are also you jettison. You are perfect. You don't need to become a spiritual person. The real you. This individual is climbing its way upwards. That's why I'm telling again and again. Finishing school. Finishing school. You know, in, in the introduction to Ashtavakra Gita, um, Byron, who translated it, he says, after all the religions have spoken, the, uh, the, um, the philosophers have had their say and fallen silent, after even the great scriptures of humanity, the different scriptures of the world, have had their say and fallen silent, Ashtavakra begins. Ashtavakra Gita. If there is one book which is higher than this also, uh, which is it's the Ashtavakra, which we will do sometime. Uh, I promise to finish it one day or the other. <laughs> we will touch it. But, but what he means to say is true of this book also. That Vedanta is basically the culmination. So this absolute which they are talking about, the one reality which is the ground of waking, dreaming, deep sleep, that is impersonal. It's not personal. The moment you talk about persons, you are back into the triangle of God, word and person. 
The moment you transcend this triangle, there's no more individual left. How can there be individual? Just look at your own deep sleep. Is there an individual left? No. The individual is still there in a seed form because it comes back the moment you wake up. But in deep sleep itself, the individual is not experienced and yet you are there. Something is there in deep sleep. Yeah, but separate from you. <laughs> Separate from you? <laughs> Think about it. In deep sleep, is there something separate from you? <coughs> no, separate from you means separate, you separate from me, you meant? Yes. Is that true? I don't know, that's why I'm asking you. Think about it. Is that true? Your waking experience, your waking experience right now, is separate. Isn't it different from everybody else's? Yes. Isn't it different from everybody else's? Aren't our dreams different from each other's dreams? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. It's for everybody. I'm sure. yeah. It's like revision, what we have, we have done in the first chapter. Are our uh, deep sleep experiences different? No. 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 There's no individual left in deep sleep itself. Let alone the Turiya, the fourth, which is beyond deep sleep. So no individuality left there. And individuality is something that is meant to be transcended. It's the very symbol of the false. But it's, it's a process of growth. I mean, you go through that. The ego. The ego is the individual. So the is it the same? I was just about to ask. So, transcend individuality or ego? Is it the same? The same thing. Ego is a function of the mind, right? Think about it. What is the ego? It's a function of the mind. The mind which says, I. I am this body-mind. That's the ego. But that's not consciousness. Consciousness is shining on the ego. It's beyond the ego. So now you are identifying yourself with the base consciousness, with the background consciousness, not with the individual body-mind. The individual body-mind is a vehicle for you. Alright. So what we are, the, the takeaway from the question is that what we are looking at here, in the Mandukya, in Vedanta, in fact, in all of Advaita Vedanta, is an impersonal reality. Not a better individual. It's just the opposite. In fact, we'll come to it now. What do you gain out of it? It is just the opposite of an enhanced individual. If you want this individual to stay and be a better individual, then sign up for the yoga studio and, and a gluten-free diet and go jogging in and improve your mind, go to the New York Public Library, attend lectures, a better body, a better mind, a um, more cultured person. That's an enhanced individual. Subject to complete destruction by the end of the turn of the century. All gone. Completely gone. We will keep doing that. Having done that lifetime after lifetime, the question comes, what's the point of all of this? What are we doing? A little bit of Alzheimer's. Gone. All your enormous learning gone. Yeah. It's a fact. Why are people scared of it? We're scared of, there's a reason why we are scared of it. We are scared of it because we think that's who we are. If that's gone, then I'm gone. No, you are not. That's the great message of hope that <coughs> all religions give you, and especially Vedanta is telling you that you are already beyond it all. You're completely safe from that. <coughs> now, in the four verses, these four verses are really worth memorizing. They're very beautiful verses. Um, Jnana at its most practical level. Enlightenment, Advaiti, non-dual realization at its most practical level. 
practical is the word I would be careful of using it at its most vivid level. Then he's going to talk about it. Thirty-five, thirty-fifth verse was Vita Rava Bhayakrodha. What did it uh, say? So how does one become enlightened? It mentions or indicates the four um, necessary preparations for non-dual knowledge. Four fold qualifications. You should start with this. It's coming really late in this text. Uh, Mandukya Gaudapada is reminding you, this is what you start with. You start climbing the Everest, this is the backpack you need to have. And the oxygen tank and everything. What are they? Viveka. The discrimination, the analysis between the eternal and the non-eternal. A sense that there is an eternal reality. And everything else is passing. A shadow, a show. First, Viveka. Discrimination. Clearly, the clarity in your mind. Second, vairagya, a dispassion for the non-eternal, for the passing show of life, a dispassion. Not a hatred, a dispassion. I have seen through it all. I know ultimately it doesn't matter. I want that eternal reality. I want God-realization. I want moksha, nirvana. I want that, not this. So that is dispassion. Then, the six-fold treasure. Do you remember? These are the treasures, you, this is the monetary resources you need for the spiritual journey. What do you need? Shama. These are the six credit cards in your, in your wallet. And they, if you max them out, then you're in trouble. You need to use them. Shama, quietness of mind, a peaceful mind. One of the greatest blessings in life, to have a peaceful mind. Second, Dhamma, control of the senses. Not physically restless. Control of senses. I've seen it. I go and read in the New York Public Library. I've seen one guy comes so restless, he makes the whole table restless, jumping around all the time. Another person comes, sits, and reads for hours and hours and hours together, absolutely steady. Physically steady. Be physically steady. Um, then, titiksha, a spiritual fortitude, toughness. No matter what the temperature is, I'm going to turn up for the Vedanta class. <laughs> or physically ill, still I'm going to pursue. Life is going to throw hardship at us. And the first thing that's usually sacrificed is our higher spiritual... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what happens. No, I'm going to hold on to that and sacrifice the rest if need be. Spiritual toughness, titiksha, forbearance. Then the uh, fourth one is um, uparati. Withdrawal from too much engagement. You see, if you are partying all weekend long, then there is very little time and energy left over for higher, higher pursuits. And the mind also gets colored by those things. One must withdraw. Otherwise, um, you cannot shift so easily from a very a lifestyle so mixed up with the world in sensuous enjoyment and then shift gear suddenly into spirituality. doesn't work. So, uparati, withdrawal, a certain withdrawal is necessary. Samadhana, focus, steadiness, hold on, you are withdrawn, don't keep getting swept back into worldliness again. Now, settle down on your spiritual quest, settle down on meditation, settle down on Vedantic study, settle down on perfecting your ethical life, settle down, samadhana, focus, steady. Literally, here it means steadiness in Vedantic study. Samadhana. Then, shraddha, 
a space that though I have not realized it yet, it's ultimately this is correct. What the teachers are telling us, what the texts are telling us, there is a reality here. Shraddha. And then the last one, the fourth one, we took, the third one is a set of six. Having completed the six, then the fourth one, last one is Mumukshukto, an intense desire to be free. Free of what? Free of the bondage of samsara. This wheel of suffering and birth and death and, and striving and failure. Freedom from individuality. This is Mumukshukto, an intense desire to be free. So the he has indicated those four. Those four qualifications are necessary. Keep your eyes on that. When you are driving, you keep your eyes on three or four dials, you know, the gas and the temper engine temperature and the speed um, and you're on the drive mirrors behind you. So you keep your eyes on those things. Similarly, in spiritual life, you have to keep your eyes on these four, four qualifications. Are they strong or am I running low in any of them? Usually trouble is because I'm running low. Trouble is not really with Vedanta. Trouble is with uh, those... Lack of those fourfold qualifications. I remember asked, talking with a great uh, uh, Vedanta teacher, one who was considered to be an enlightened person, Jivan Mukta, enlightened while living. So I'm asking him, I didn't dare to say, is this enlightenment? But I they say, so what do you think? This is my understanding of Vedanta. And he says to me, back to the basics, young monk. <laughs> uh, he says, in Hindi, he said, I mean, what he said was, um, you have a grasp on Vedanta, there's no doubt about that. But are you firmly established in the fourfold qualifications? He said in Hindi, Aapko Vedanta par pakad hai. Sadhan chatushta drid hai, Mahatma ji. Are you firm in the fourfold qualifications, or O monk? So, back to those four. It's, it, that's where Swami Vivekananda says, I know where the shoe pinches. That's where it pinches. The unglamorous part of spiritual life. It's pointed out here. And then, and then I will not explain further because then it will go on the whole. I explained it last time, the verse. Nirvikalpo yayam By such a person who has studied Vedanta, manana, thought about it, qualified with the fourfold qualifications, he realizes, I am this self, you. To be without any division. What does division mean? Remember how we studied this? In Brahman is real, you are the you are the reality, the world is an appearance. But in terms of this text, Mandukya, what does it mean? It means waker and waker's word, dreamer and dreamer's word, deep sleeper and deep sleeper's darkness. These are the divisions. They seem separate from each other. Underlying all of them is the one nirvikalpa, undivided self, the fourth. You are the fourth. You realize yourself as not the waker experiencing a world, not the dreamer experiencing dreams, not the one in deep sleep, rather the one consciousness in which these three appear and disappear. When we say world is false, world is an appearance, in Mandukya language what does it mean? What is the word in Mandukya language? Waker's world plus dreamer's word, plus deep sleep, darkness. Or in more philosophical language, the word is the sthula, jagat, that means the physical world we experience now. Sukshma prapancha, the subtle word of thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas in our mind. 
Karana Prapancha, the causal world in what we experience in deep sleep, where everything is scrunched together into a featureless darkness, the seed state. All this is called world. This is an appearance. This is not a separate reality apart from us, what we think of it to be. All right, done. This is 35. This is what the realization that comes after. Now, 36. Another very beautiful verse. Please chant together. Tasma devam viditvainam Tasma devam viditvainam Advaite yojayet smritim Advaite yojayet smritim Advaitam samanuprapya Advaitam samanuprapya Jadavad lokam achare. Therefore, knowing it to be thus, so you should understand what is meant. Otherwise, the translation is knowing it to be thus, knowing what to be what. One should fix one's memory on non-duality. Having attained the non-dual, one should behave in the world as though one were dull with it. Okay, what does it mean? The question here is, after enlightenment, what should you do? That's one question. So what do I do next, after I become enlightened? Or how do I live? In Sanskrit, kemacharet. How does one behave? How does the enlightened one behave? How, what will I do after? Suppose I do accomplish this. When you study Advaita Vedanta, you get the feeling of imminent enlightenment. <laughs> one person who was attending the Gita class, he said, he's listening to the teachings of Krishna and you're thinking, it's so close, I can realize it now. So, if enlightenment is imminent, my God, then what's the plan for after enlightenment, post-enlightenment plan? What do I do? So, that this answer to that question. What does he say? Advaite tatsmadevam viditvayam Having realized the self to be such. Such means the one non-dual consciousness which is the, the foundation of the waker and the waker's world, dreamer and dreamer's world, deep sleeper and deep sleeper's world, the turi or the fourth, having realized, I am that. I am Atma Brahma. This very self is the absolute. I am Brahman, having realized that. Or on your way to realizing that. Or having known that from studying Vedanta. Having known everything that has been taught till now. Having known all this. Thinking well about it. What do you do? Advaite Yojayet Smriti. So even before the final enlightenment, what do you do now? What's to be done? Fix your memory upon non-duality. Literally it means this. What do you mean fix your memory upon non-duality? Um, translator says, that means continuously think of the non-dual. Alright. Here is a point which has to be understood carefully. Memory, thinking of the non-dual, is a practice. It is not enlightenment. What do I mean by that? See, it's like this. Um, it's, a, it's a rope. It's not a snake. It's a rope. It's not a snake. I'm thinking that. I've not yet seen it clearly. So it's not enlightenment. When I see that it's a rope, I will not have to keep thinking that it's a rope. It's not a snake. It's not a rope. It's not a snake. You know the snake rope example? As long as I'm thinking it, it's a practice. If I have to keep thinking, do I keep thinking, 
I'm Sarvapriyananda, I'm Sarvapriyananda. I don't know about you, but I don't keep thinking I'm Sarvapriyananda. I know I'm Sarvapriyananda. I don't have to keep thinking it. Do you see? I don't have to engage. I don't have to keep thinking that I'm Sarvapriyananda just in case I forget. No. It's not a question of memory. Follow this carefully. Memory and knowledge are very different. Vedanta clearly, Vedantic epistemology clearly distinguishes between memory and knowledge. Jnana and Smriti. <coughs> smriti means not a memory. <coughs> and Smriti is not regarded as knowledge. Smriti is not regarded as knowledge. What is knowledge in Vedanta? Vedantic knowledge is the knowledge which is produced by realization based on the teaching of Vedanta. Teaching of Vedanta, Tattvamasi, that thou art, or what we have been studying so far. The enlightening knowledge that you get, I am Brahman. The knowledge is produced by Pramana. Pramana means a source of knowledge. What is the source of knowledge in this case? It is Vedanta, the Upanishads. So the knowledge produced by Upanishads, not contradicted by other sources of knowledge, what you realize, Aham Brahmasmi, should not be contradicted by what you are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. It's very interesting. It should not be contradicted by science also. So it all should not be contradicted by reason also. So it should not be contradicted by any other source of knowledge. Realization based on the Upanishads, not contradicted by any other source of knowledge, and is not a memory. That's also clearly specified. It's not a memory. It's not something that you are imagining or remembering. It's not a remembrance. It's like, this is an important point to understand why many people at this point think that the real thing is this. And Gaurapada himself says, fix your memory on non-duality. So I must keep on remembering that I am Brahman, right? That's what we have to do. The same monk who I just mentioned, the Jivan Mukta, Purusha, um, he is, I can tell you his name, he, he's passed away, so uh, he is Ramananda Saraswati. He was like a wandering monk in the north of India, in Omkarishwar. I met him in, in, uh, in uh, Kankhal, which is Haridwar. So, this, uh, I was there in the conversation. A young monk is questioning Ramananda Saraswati and comes to this point, exactly this point, and says, at least we must hold on to this, right? I am Brahman. Forget everything else. But this is what we must focus on and stay with it. I am Brahman. And Ramananda Saraswati very earnestly says to him, this is exactly what you must not do. <coughs> In Hindi he said, Yehi to nahi karna hai, which is shocking. Why? Think about it. Back to the example of the actor playing Lady Macbeth, for example. Does the actor continuously have to think, I am the actor, Miss So-and-So, and I'm not Lady Macbeth. I must keep this in mind, otherwise I might forget. I might disappear and only Lady Macbeth might be left over. Does any actor think like that? No. No. Why? What is the difference between the actor's individuality and Lady Macbeth's individuality? The Lady Macbeth individuality is entirely superimposed. It depends, it, it's for its existence, it depends on the actor thinking and acting like Lady Macbeth. The actor tries to feel like Lady Macbeth, <coughs> act like Lady Macbeth, speak the lines of Lady Macbeth, and then for that time she is Lady Macbeth. But she knows, effortlessly she knows that I am not Lady Macbeth, I am Miss So-and-So, the, the stage actor. And that knowing, follow this carefully, 
that knowing is not a, not a memory. It may be there in the memory, but it's not a memory. It's knowledge. It's not a thinking. It's not a put-on identity. It's what you already know yourself to be. You don't have to keep it up with effort. The Lady Macbeth persona has to be kept up with effort. The moment you stop that effort, the Lady Macbeth persona disappears. I am Brahman is not like Lady Macbeth persona. <coughs> it's like the actor's knowledge of his own identity. The actor and Lady Macbeth thing is an example, right? Here, imagine the actor, the individuality of the actor is also put on a superimposition. Beyond that is the steady light of consciousness, consciousness which is, which is unchanging. That reality I am. I know it. I don't have to remember it all the time. I don't have to keep telling myself. As long as your non-duality, your enlightenment keeps, depends on your repeating to yourself like a mantra. I am Brahman, I am Brahman, I am Brahman. It's not realization yet. It's a practice. Do you see? So this warning, this is how one must understand. Advaite yojayet spriting. Connect your memory, fix your memory upon non-duality, fix your memory upon non-duality is a practice. It's not enlightenment yet. This point has to be clear. Otherwise, one will think, so this is the end of Advaita Vedanta. One must keep thinking that we are Brahman. No. Um, a, a pretty senior monk once was explaining it to us, I remember. And he said it's like, um, you know, that stage is like, you have an EEG machine which goes up and down like this, so it's I am Brahman, I am Brahman, like that. And I was like, no, it is not. This is exactly what it is not. So one may tend to think like that by reading these books, but, but uh, one must understand what they are pointing towards. Then why would they say, fix your memory upon non-duality? As a sadhana, as a spiritual practice. Keep up shavana manana nididhyasana. Continuously rotate the teachings of Vedanta in your mind. Dwell upon it. And try to assimilate the teaching. Yes, keep on thinking. I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. But remember that thinking is not enlightenment. There is something more beyond that. A flash of enlightenment which comes. In fact, this one point I'll make. And before I go ahead. To sum up this. Smriti and Jnana. Knowledge and memory. Smriti means memory. Jnana means knowledge. So technically speaking, Smriti is called Samskara Janya, born of traces. So what we do in the world, what we see and hear, our experiences in the world, they become traces in the mind. And those traces give rise to memory. That is Smriti. And jnana, how is knowledge born? Is pramana janya. Jnana, knowledge is born from sources of knowledge. What is the source of knowledge? Seeing is a source of knowledge. Hearing is a source of knowledge. Um, smelling, tasting, touching. Inference is a source of knowledge. In fact, in Vedanta, we talk, talk about six sources of knowledge. Vedanta itself is a source of knowledge. It's like this. A simple difference. Look at me. Look at this pen in my hand. Now look at it. Actually look at it. When you are looking at it, this is jnana, knowledge. You have perceptual knowledge of the pen. 
This is called Pratyaksha Pramana. Pratyaksha means perceptual. Visual perception is giving you knowledge of the pen right now. Next, close your eyes and imagine the pen which you just saw. Try to remember it, recollect it in your mind. What you are recollecting, the Swami holding the pen, that is Smriti, memory. Where did that come from? That came from the trace. Where did the trace come from? The trace came from the knowledge. When you are looking at it and a trace was found in your mind. So, when you are seeing it actually, this is knowledge. When you are remembering it, that's memory, that's not knowledge. You can remember many things which have gone in the past, which are not there right now. Memories of the sense of what we actually experienced in the past. When you recollect it in the present, those things are not here now. What you are recollecting is not a direct experience. It's a reconstruction from traces. It's not reality. Memory is not reality. It's a memory of something real that you saw many years ago, no doubt about it. But memory itself is not reality. Do you follow this? Memory itself is not giving you real knowledge. But protection, um, sources of knowledge give you real knowledge. What is really there? It's what you're seeing. It's really there. <coughs> similarly, Brahma Jnana, realization of Brahman, enlightenment also, similarly, will give you realization, I am Brahman. Not remembering that I am Brahman. This distinction. So Smriti is called Samskara Janya. I'm writing the Sanskrit. Born of traces. Samskara, not Samsara. Samskara Janya. Janya means born. And Jnana is Pramana Janya. What is Pramana? Source of knowledge. All this sounds fancy, but it's not actually. Right now you did it. When you saw it with your eyes, what, what, are, what is the source of knowledge? Eyes. Eyes. You saw it with the eyes. You get a knowledge. Here is a pen. This is Jnana, knowledge. It reveals reality to you. Right? Now, close your eyes and remember me holding the pen. You also have a kind of experience. But that experience is born of samskara. A, pen, a, a trace left in your mind because you <coughs> saw me holding the pen. And when you, the important point is when you remember that, that is not revealing reality to you. Because the moment you open your eyes, you see that I'm no longer holding the pen. Where is where, uh, that thing is gone? It's not revealing reality to you. It's revealing a past to you. <coughs> there is a... Uh, okay, I'll go into a new topic. The three hands. Let's hear the questions. No, 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 no. All secular knowledge is classified under jnana. So, so, seeing the pen, secular knowledge is jnana. Okay. So All of it is jnana. So, Pratyaksha gives jnana, Anumana, inference, science gives knowledge, uh, the, uh, the perception, direct perception gives knowledge, yes. So, what is the source of knowledge for Brahma Jnana? Because all the, all the sources of knowledge that we listed are... Uh, for secular knowledge. For, for sec yeah, subject, object, secular knowledge. Kind yes. of so, what is the source of knowledge? The source for, for Brahma Jnana is Upanishad, Vedanta. So, scripture. Scripture. It points it out. But remember, scripture not in the sense of believing, believing something. Right. It points it out and then you're supposed to realize it yourself. 
So it is an intuitive realization, but, but for that you need the pointer. The pointer comes from Vedanta. It's the instigator, the catalyst from outside, which is needed for inner awakening. So that's how it functions. Smriti Swamiji, isn't it trace of uh, knowledge? Yes. But it's influenced by one's perception. Like for instance... Perception is knowledge. Isn't it? So even my recollection of it hmm. will be obviously, you know, like for instance you were holding a pen. I saw it as maybe your index finger was up. Somebody mm. else could have seen your index finger down. No, so no, 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 no. Never, 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 never. See, this is where it comes in. If my index finger is up like this, I'm holding it. But doesn't it depend on, you know, the angle from which I'm seeing it? True. But the thing, thing is that if you saw my index finger up like this, they are, nobody else could have seen it down. They could have not seen my index finger. That's true from the angle. But nobody could have seen it. It cannot be up and down at the same time. What protection is, knowledge is telling us that there is a reality which is revealed. What you are seeing from different points of view, they will see different things. But the same thing, you can, nobody could have seen my index finger down and up at the same time, at the same point of time. It's impossible, I can't do it. How will you see it? Either one is wrong, or the other is right. So, so then, in that situation, and the reason I'm asking is there's a very famous film called Rashomon by yeah. Kurosawa, yeah. you know, and there they in fact question this whole thing of what is truth, what right. is reality. Right. So it's, it's really... So that goes into the realms of philosophy. Here we are talking about base, hard life reality. How do you function? You don't function like Rashomon, day to day life. Either you need, either you have run out of um, ketchup in your fridge and you need to go out to Trader Joe's or you don't. You don't sit and do the Rashomon thing that there are seven ways of looking at it. Like either there is ketchup or there is half of ketchup or ketchup is hidden or there are so many stories about it. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. But that's not philosophy as such. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful way of, of conceiving of it. Different people saw different things and so they have different ideas of what happened at that time. A lot of memory is involved in that. A lot of retelling is involved in that. And so a lot of reconstruction is involved. But right now, in a simple situation, what is there, what you are seeing, you are seeing one thing. Right? And so that's what we, we call knowledge. What your eyes are revealing. Now what you tend to filter out from that, what you tend to focus on, is a subjective element. But everybody saw that there is a pen in my hand. Right now, you are seeing the pen in my hand. I'm telling something very simple. Don't go into too much detail. Use the sophistication for Advaita, not for Rashomana. Yes. So here is your sense organs revealing a pen in my hand. Point one. It is revealing reality. That's how in secular world how we function, how science functions, how we all function. Is it not true? Is it not true? You seem doubtful. You function all the time you're doing that. You'd be dead if you did not do that. You'd be run over by a streetcar tomorrow. You'd be hit by traffic if you, if you don't function in this way. So, we are all functioning using our sense organs. This is knowledge, for example. And when you recall it, lying down at night again, recalling um, the traffic going by on the, on the road which you saw, that is memory. And the point here is knowledge reveals reality to you. Memory does not reveal reality to you. 
memory is a recollection of something that you have experienced, which your traces help you to reconstruct. Because when you are thinking about it, when you are remembering it, at that time it's not reality. It's already passed. That traffic has gone by. The pain is no longer in my hand. It's not revealing a present reality. When, when you are remembering it or thinking about it. So this distinction Vedanta wants to make. It's a small distinction. Don't make too much of it. But keep it. Remembering something. Because why this distinction is made is always remember God. What does it mean? My Krishna, 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 I'm repeating. So that's a practice. That's a practice. And it's a good practice. Advaita is not talking about that. Advaita is talking about see, look here, here's the pen. You are Atman. You are Atman. And Advaita is not asking you to think I'm Atman, I'm Atman, I'm Atman. No, no, no. You can think that it's a powerful practice, but that's not the goal of Advaita. Ultimately, it should lead to clarity about I am Atman. Like you are the actor, you don't need to keep thinking I'm the actor. You don't need to keep thinking I'm Atman. Yeah. Yes, somebody had a question. So, Maharaj, uh, after I have the jnana, I will know that I'm Atman. How I will know that Atman is equal to Brahman? That is part of the jnana. That is part of jnana. Knowing, uh, does that happen in your mind? Yes. And no. And no. <laughs> it's a separate topic in itself. It, it takes, it doesn't take too long, 45 minutes to explain. <laughs> yes, so there's a topic. Is the mind necessary for knowing? It's in, the, it's in the ABC book of Vedanta, which we learned at the beginning, Vedanta Sara. Towards the end of that, there is a topic. Because we keep saying the Atman is beyond mind, beyond speech. So there are Upanishads. Ken Upanishad says, Yan manasana manute. What is not, what cannot be thought of by the mind, but by which the thoughts in the mind are revealed. Yan manasana manute, yenahur manomatam. That is, tadeva brahmatvam vidhi. Realize that to be Brahman. That's Ken Upanishad, which says that Atman is beyond mind. And yet, there is nothing Katopanishad which says, it can be known only by the mind. How can both be true? Both are true. And actually, there is a very precise sense in which both are true. What can the mind do in Brahmajyana and what the mind cannot do? I will not go into the details, but to, if I would put it in two sentences, it's like this. The Atman is ever revealed, ever shining forth, right now, self-revealed by like this light. It, like this light does not require another light to reveal it. The Atman does not require the mind to reveal it. The mind is also revealed by the Atman. In fact, the mind cannot function without consciousness. Consciousness reveals the mind. The consciousness reveals itself. And it reveals the mind. And through the mind it reveals the body and the senses. Through the body and senses it reveals a world. So this is how consciousness is functioning. This is or Functioning is not even a good word. This is how consciousness shines. Upanishad says, that shining, everything else shines. By its light, everything is lit up. Or we might say, you shining, the real you, everything else shines. By your light, everything in your life is lit up. Tameva bhantam anubhati sarvam, sasya bhasa sarvam idam vibhati. That's the Sanskrit. Now, then what can the mind do? The mind can do this. It is the mind, the ignorance in the mind, which is obscuring the fact that I am Atman. So the knowledge which will come in the mind 
will remove the ignorance in the mind. Somebody is in and out. Come on in, come and sit, come and sit. You want, you want to attend? So, ignorance is in the mind, knowledge is also in the mind, knowledge in the mind removes the ignorance, that knowledge actually does not reveal the Atman. The Atman is self-revealed. So, to put it precisely, what, what can knowledge do? What can the spiritual knowledge, what can it do? It will remove the ignorance that I am not the Atman. It will remove the ignorance that I am not the Atman. The ignorance is, the result of that ignorance is, I am not Atman, I am body, I am mind. This ignorance is removed by knowledge. What does it not do? It does not directly reveal the Atman. What does secular knowledge do? It reveals the object. Here is a pen. Brahma Jnana will not reveal, here is an Atman, no. Brahma Jnana will show you that you thought you were body-mind, you are not body-mind, that becomes very clear. And that, that you are the Atman, it then stands revealed. Let's say. Okay. Now let's go on. Then what does it mean, Yojayitsvitim, connect your memory, what is the practice then? I have, now, with all this discussion, we understand, yes, there is a distinction between the practice and the ultimate realization. Alright. But this, connect your mind to non-duality, um, how? There is a beautiful verse, which goes like this. The enlightened masters, they do not stay for one moment without the awareness that they are Brahman. Vritti uh, means the modification of the mind of thought. Without the knowledge of Brahman, they, do not, they are not even for one moment without Brahmamayim. Brahmamayim means pervaded by Brahman, the knowledge that everything is pervaded by Brahman. Without that knowledge, they do not even stay for a moment. Who are these people? Uh, Shukadeva, the great Paramahamsa, Shukadeva. Sanaka, uh, the great Rishi. Brahma, the creator, and so on. So they do not stay. Such are the, the, the fully enlightened ones who do not stay for even one moment without what is called Brahmamayim Vritti. That everything is Brahman. That, that. But here is a thing to be understood. This Brahma Mahi Vritti, this, this final knowledge, highest knowledge, is again, follow this carefully, I'll repeat it, is again of three kinds, three levels. The first level is non-dual meditation. They call it, the three levels are, I'll give you the names, Avarta Rupa, like waves in an ocean. Second one, Brahmahakara Vritti. The, what is literally called Brahma Dhyana, enlightenment about Brahma. What we normally call enlightenment, that's the second one. There's a third one, Brahma Mai Vritti, which is talked about in this verse. The all-pervading Brahman, knowledge about the, constant knowledge about the all-pervading Brahman. This third one is called Sahajavastha, the natural state. What it's like is this. Take the case of snake and rope. Now you've done all the due diligence. You have studied that it's not a snake, it's a rope. All these Vedanta teachings have been taken in. 
you are not the waker, you are not the dreamer, deep sleeper, you are the consciousness in which these three come and go. You have studied all of that. Now stay with it. This is called Vedantic meditation, non-dual meditation. There are techniques of that. Basically this is like the waves of an ocean. Continuously one wave, after that another one, after that another one, after that another one, without break, without pause, without ceasing. It comes after one after another after another. They are all ocean waves. Similarly, without giving the slightest chance to the idea, I am a body, I am sick, I am dying, I am helpless, I am sad, I am frustrated, without giving pause for these vrittis, these waves to come in the lake of the mind, let the waves be, I am Brahman, I am Brahmasmi, I am Turiyasmi, Satchidanandasmi, Chidananda Rupa Shivoham. I am of the nature of consciousness, I am of the nature of bliss, I am of the nature of Shiva. It keeps on coming like the waves of an ocean. This is non-dual meditation. This is what is meant by Yoja Yitzvitim. First stage. What will happen? As you keep doing this, there is a purpose for this. Why do you do this? Because contrary tendencies are there. The mind has gotten into the habit of thinking, I am body-mind. Thinking as a body-mind, speaking as body-mind, and reacting to the world as body-mind, as an individual. The individuality is so strong in us, you know, that's the root of the question. I know I'm Atman, but how do I know this Atman is Brahman? Because I have made up my mind, I'm an individual. So if I realize an Atman, it's still the Atman of an individual. No, no, no. There's a way out of that, but anyway, the thing is, this, this thing is erased by continuously dwelling. A powerful counter-conditioning is set up. So that it becomes easier. It becomes more natural to think of yourself, see yourself as Brahman, not as body-mind. It actually happens over time. But it's hard work. You have to stay with it. Swami, no, let me finish this. Swami Vivekananda said, tell yourself again and again, I am that. So um, I am that. Till it tingles with every drop of your blood. See, if you do that right now without reference to your Vedantic study, it becomes a kind of brainwashing. It doesn't really work. But with your reference to your Vedantic study, once you have got clarity, stay with that clarity. That is Vedantic meditation. Staying with the clarity is Vedantic meditation. It's like when you go to the class and you learn the equations, the laws of thermodynamics. You know the mathematics behind it. You know the concepts behind it. When you keep thinking about it again and again and again, you are driving that knowledge deep into yourself. Without understanding the mathematics, if you memorize the equations, that's also kind of knowledge, but you don't know what's there under the hood, what's going on there, you don't know anything. You just know some symbols. So that's the difference. Having learned everything, having understood everything, having got clarity about it, to overcome what they call contrary tendencies. In Sanskrit, viparita bhavana. Contrary tendencies, I am body, I am a man, or I am young or old, I am rich or poor, I am frustrated or I am, I am successful, whatever. These are all contrary tendencies. They are not true. They are true only when you think of yourself as body-mind. So that is overcome stage one. Stage one. What is the avartarupa? Ocean-like waves in an ocean. They are coming continuously. And so the counter-conditioning is set up. You, you become centered in reality. Then stage 2 comes. What is stage 2? Brahmatara Vritti. In English, literally, 
the vritti, the modification of the mind in the form of Brahman, or more simply, enlightenment. What is normally called enlightenment, Brahma Jnana, that is second stage. You realize, aham brahmasmi, you realize it, not thinking about it anymore, not a dwelling on a clarity anymore. It comes as a flash. Difference is this. The first one is, you have learned that it's not a snake. You are clear about it. It's a rope. You are mistaking it for a snake. You are still a little afraid. Could be. It looks pretty real. So, it's not a snake. It's not a snake. It's a rope. It's a rope. It's not a snake. That's stage one. At one point, you clearly see. Oh, where's the snake? There's no snake. It is a rope. That is the stage of enlightenment. It's the, it's the moment of correction. It's not a snake. Never was a snake. Not a snake now, never will be a snake. It always has been a rope. The whole problem was an error. There's a, there's a precise moment when you go from one side to the other. It's a precise moment. You can never forget it all your life long. The screen just lifts. And permanently. It's, it's like looking into the sun. Don't look into the sun directly. It's like looking into the sun. You cannot doubt it. No matter whatever tell people tell you, there's no sun in the sky. It's blazing forth. So it's there. So, that is the second stage, the moment of enlightenment. That's very clear. That's what normally in spiritual literature is regarded as Satori, enlightenment, Brahma, Jnana. That's second, Brahma, Karavikti. But even that's not the end. There comes a third stage, called the natural state. They call it Brahmavai Vritti, where you don't even keep thinking, Oh, it's not a snake, it's a rope. Do you keep thinking that all the time? No. You know it's a rope now. You don't even think about it anymore. It becomes natural to you. Do you see this subtle difference between the, this second stage and third one? It's a rope. Well, go on with your life. In the same way, it becomes Brahman. Everything is Brahman. Inside and outside. I am Brahman. Everything that appears to me is Brahman. It's very clear. Atman is Brahman. Mind is also Brahman. Body is also Brahman. Word is Brahman. It's not that there is a word and a body and a mind which is somehow Brahman. Rather, Brahman is and is appearing in these forms. Every character in the movie is, is the screen. Every incident in the movie is the screen. There is, those things are not real in themselves. The screen alone is real. And you don't have to keep reminding yourself when you are watching a movie. I need not be concerned about Harry Potter. He's not really in trouble. It's just a screen and light. Do you keep reminding yourself? No. You'd spoil the enjoyment of the movie if you did that. You know. You know it's not real. You know the screen is real. All the time. Without thinking about it. That is called Brahmamani Vritti. So they say the most enlightened, the completely enlightened persons, they, they live in this world with full knowledge that I am Brahman and everybody else is. There is only one. In fact, it's not a question of I and everybody else. Brahman alone shines forth in this beautiful samsara. That's their knowledge. That's the third stage. First stage, it's not a snake, it's a rope. Practice, practice, practice. Second stage, breakthrough. Oh, there, I see it. Third stage, it's a rope. The snake is a memory. It's not within consideration anymore. I'll come to you. She asked.
Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. See, they stay with that idea. Within that, they are enlightened. In that case, dualism and non-dualism has a little bit... I know. Idea I know. But remember, what are we studying here? <laughs> non-dualism, non yes. <laughs> I know. A strict non-dualist, you know, I'll give you the two differences. A strict non-dualist would say, from Gaudapada's angle, what you're talking about is a much lower state. Uh, until that has to be transcended and they have to come here. Because that's still within appearances. That's still in the triangle of God, world and individuals. Jiva, Jagat, Ishwara. That has to be transcended beyond all three. There is the ground of reality. Meister Eckhart's words. The ground of God and the ground of my soul are the same. The same as Aham Brahma That's a strict non-dualist would say that. Dualistic religion is a lower kind of religion. This is the final. I say finishing school. Peak of the Everest. But what you are saying is what Ayanvaj is saying. There is another paradigm, which is not within these limits. Godapada would be taking out a stick to hit me if I start speaking like that. Todapuri would be after me without his pincers. But there is another paradigm, a wider paradigm, in which you recognize these are all paradigms. No matter how sophisticated. This is the most sophisticated form of non-dualism in the world. There is nothing, that, all, all my studies, I have not come across anything close to this. Um, Advaita Vedanta. And in Advaita Vedanta, Mandukya. Except perhaps Ashtavakra. But which is, again, Ashtavakra is not a philosophy in itself. It's just the conclusion hammered in the game throughout the world. So, this is it. Yes, there is a wider paradigm. And Sri Ramakrishna would say, Fine. What is the need for so much talk? Realize it, taste the mango and be happy. And don't say your mango is better than mine. You have to taste it this way to taste the sweetness. He, he, he gave the example. Whether you taste it in this way or you taste it like this or you taste it upside down. Yeah. It, it tastes exactly the same. I'll come to you with a question. By definition, the second stage cannot be a result of the first stage. It will be a result. But Brahman is beyond cause and effect. Yes. Brahman is not produced by the second stage. Remember, enlightenment is produced by the second stage. What is enlightenment? It is it is removal of the doubt that I it is removal of the wrong notion, I am not Brahman. By repeating, by practicing that it is not a snake, it's a rope. You did not produce the rope. You only remove the error that it's a snake. In the case of Brahman, you only remove the error that there is no Brahman, I am a body mind. That is removed now, you realize it is Brahman and I am that. That's it. But you did not produce Brahman by all these practices. Brahman is not something produced, it's always there. Yeah, you have a question? <clears throat> yes. Um, I have been uh, reading the, uh, Man, Man, I hope you say this right, uh, Mandukya. Mandukya, this is what we are doing now. On yes. my own, it's my first time coming here. I did attend the Interfaith conference that you had a few right. weeks ago, and um, it's been something that I've been trying to work on, on my mind, in my mind, um, to try to find a unity between various faiths. Yes. In reading this, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be pointing towards all religious thought as being, and also the creation as being part of Maya. Yes. Correct. Right. Part of Maya. Now, I, I, yes. Then, to reach a certain stage of enlightenment in this regard, 
is kind of uh, scary. It is true. But remember, though it is part of Maya, what would Gaudapada say to religious thought? There are Maya, there is a part of Maya like greed, lust, worldliness, which traps you in samsara. And religion, whichever form it is, though it is part of Maya from Gaudapada's perspective, it's still dualistic thinking. It sets you free from samsara. It leads you to the non-dualism. Though it is dualism, without its help you cannot reach non-dualism. So dualism is of two kinds, helpful and not helpful. The not helpful kind traps us in worldliness, in suffering and sin and sorrow. Yeah. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, coming from monotheism, monotheism, even though it's one and mono, yes. is dualism. Yes. Swami Vivekananda pointed out here, see, the Abrahamic religions make a big deal out of monotheism. It's childish from an Advaitic perspective. Swami Vivekananda said, I am afraid your much vaunted monotheism is but halfway house. What you have done is, the primitive polytheistic faith, you said, no, 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 not like this. There is one reality, one God, which is a great step forward in human uh, civilization. Good. But Advaita is light years beyond that. Not one God. It is one reality alone which appears as God, you and the universe. The reality of God and your reality and the universe's reality are one reality. So it transcends that also. That's why it's called non-dualistic. Somebody pointed out that in a Christian country when you talk about dualism, immediately people think dualism of good and evil. But in Vedanta, dualism is a metaphysical dualism, not good and evil, not a value dualism. It's, uh, it's whether there are multiple realities or one reality. Even in monotheism, there are multiple realities. You and I are different realities. The world is a pluralistic reality. And beyond that, there is one God. That's what monotheism says. There are not multiple gods. What would Vedanta say to that? They would say, of course, and not interesting. Move on. <laughs> Move on. What is that God and what are you? What's the reality of that God and what is your reality? That monotheistic God is not the final God of religion. Beyond that lies non-dualism. And it's not that uh, Christian mystics did not know that. They knew that very well. Meister Eckhart is one I'm familiar with. But there are more than others. Uh, Saint John, the mystic, uh, Meister Eckhart, they intuited it. They have left in endless, beautiful non-dualistic records, as good as any open saying. Eckhart, for example, I quoted him. He says, um, um, the ground of God and the ground of my soul are, the, uh, are one. What do you mean the ground of God? That means the Godhead is something higher than, than the idea of the monotheistic God. The substrate. Yeah, the substrate. There is a substratum to God also. But if you talk about substratum to God, then you do not remain as an individual anymore. The moment you remain as an individual, then you have to believe in God. Because non-dualism is not atheism. Monotheism separates you from the universe yes. and God above. And God above all. So, so it's, a, it's a triangle. There is God above all, a God of religion, of faith, and the universe, and you the individual. And you are related to God by faith, by devotion, by surrender. So, non-dualism is not against it, but non-dualism says you have to go further than this. So, Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. There are forms of Vedanta which are dualistic. And they all say there is one God. There is one God. They call it by different names. The Hindus say we, we call it by Shiva, or God can be in the male form or the female form. 
God can be worshipped in this way or that way. But it, they all say it's one God. The Hinduism gives an impression of polytheism because of different forms and imagery and icons and all of that. But if you actually look at the text, they all say there's one reality. Um, but it can be experienced in different ways. more question than I'm yes. taking up every lesson. Yeah. What I have been doing as a Muslim yes. in my search yes. for the uh, sort of a unified field theory of religion yes. is using the name of Allah. Yes. All right. Uh, whenever I read in this book and see Brahman. Yes. So, and I, am I pointing myself in the right direction? More or less. What, how would a Vedantin look upon Allah? Would look upon Allah as Saguna Brahman? Brahman with qualities. <coughs> so whether it is Shiva or Vishnu or Durga or Kali or Jehovah or Allah or the Father in Heaven, they are all the Creator God. <coughs> the moment you say Creator God, <coughs> God created this universe, you are already in the realm of God, of, of, um, of the all-powerful, almighty, all-beneficent. You'll see the same uh, language being used in Vedanta, in Islam, in Christianity, in Judaism. There is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, just, benevolent creator of the universe. That is the monotheistic God. But Vedanta is talking about something beyond that also. With the monotheistic God, you do not say, I am God. That's sacrilegious. But with the ground of God and the ground of your own being, you are one and the same. There are so many Islamic, uh, the Sufis, for example, who actually realize this. In fact, one of the best non-dualistic statements I've heard is comes from a great Sufi mystic. He says, when I searched for Allah, I found myself. When I searched for myself, I found Allah. What a beautiful way of putting it. Classic. This is literally the highest teaching of Vedanta. Um, and there's more to be said about this. Even, even the Quran itself, even the beginning verses are there that... Um, um, I am not born and, uh, and I, I have no, he said, I have no children. Literally, this is Ajatavada. This is what Gaudapada is saying. The universe is actually in the sense of God. It's not created. It's not a second reality apart from God. In that sense. So, that's, that's a, I mean, the, the, you know, that's a beautiful thing. Christian mysticism, Islamic mysticism, any, any serious practitioner of religion in any religion in the world, at any time in history, you will see they have sort of come to this truth. Mainstream religion may or may not accept it because it's considered to be dangerous. So they reject it. But... Uh, there's, it, a, there's a lot invested in... Like, there's a lot invested in, in structure. Being a snake. Yes. Uh, in, in structure, in power, in organized religion. There's a lot there. And there's a reason for that also. You need to maintain a kind of society this way. Fine. But if you're a serious seeker, in all the great religious traditions of the world, they have come to this. I'll recommend two books to you. One is Perennial Philosophy. You know the Perennial Philosophy? Aldous Huxley? You should take a look. You'll love it. There he collects the teachings from the different religions of the world. And across all the subjects dealt with in religion. Starting with this first chapter is on this one. Non-dual truth. But then he goes on. The monotheistic God. The love and prayer and meditation and charity. All those ideas from across the different religions of the world. And he shows the common ground. Perennial philosophy. Aldous Huxley. Another one actually separately. That's why a Muslim scholar who is studying in, uh, he is working in England. He has compared um, 
three great masters, Shankara, Advaita Vedanta, Meister Eckhart, and a great Muslim uh, scholar of the medieval ages. And he has shown, if you translate them into reasonable English, they are almost literally saying the same thing. I read the Shankara part of it because I know that but I want you to judge how deep this scholar is. Because he is talking from an Islamic perspective. So if he has done a good job on Shankara, then I know that in his own tradition also he must have done a good job. And I'm glad to say he has done a good job on Shankara. I can say his interpretation is authentic. So that's a very beautiful book. But it's a dense book, so it's not very popular. I'll show it to you. It's called Paths to Transcendence. Paths to Transcendence. He's a Shia scholar working in England. Yeah. I hope this is not tangential, but the concept of uh, the thing in itself, does that mm. along the path? Yes, Kant, Kant ultimately came to this. I, I can't resist just mentioning this. The great philosopher Kant, who is at the, you know, they say it's like the Copernican revolution in uh, European thought, before Kant and after Kant. He came to this, that <laughs> whatever we perceive of the, of the world and about ourselves are all through what he called the categories of reason, categories of thought. Uh, time, space, uh, many other things are there. Then what is reality? He called it Ding in Jeek or in German, the thing in itself. But he stops there. He says, it can't be known. It's there. It's the foundation of reality, but it's forever unknown for us. Now, I'm making a very general statement. There are philosophers who have gone much deeper into it than that. And there are post-Kantians who develop this and they come to very Vedantic conclusions. What Vedanta says there is this. That thing in itself which you are calling unknown is self-revealed. Why is it unknown? Because it's not an object. You can't make it an object of your pramana, sources of knowledge. That which gives you secular knowledge that cannot reveal the Atman to you because it's not an object to your pramanas. Kant is right up to this. But there's one more thing. It is you yourself and you're continuously shining forth. And so the thing in itself which is the Atman can be understood or revealed or grasped intuitively. It can itself grasp itself by itself. I'm actually translating the Sanskrit. It does not need the mind to grasp it. But the mind has to be life, mind has to be aligned to it. Anyway, leave it at that. Kant's uh, approach. Alright, let's go ahead. Yes. Now, I have not come to the main topic today. One and a half hours is gone. Over <laughs> <laughs> time. What is the topic? The question was, now how do I act in this world? You see, when you go through this process, Advaitam Samanuprapya, you realize non-duality. You realize non-duality. Which process? The three stages? The Vritti. Mm -hmm. You fix your memory to that, and then you struggle with it. Yeah. Aham Brahma asked then you have the realization I am Brahman, then you realize everything is Brahman, inside, outside, all is Brahman. Sri Ramakrishna's Vigyana, that what I left behind is also Brahman. Everything is Brahman, or Brahman is the only reality. Fine. It's a world, they say it's a world, Aurobindo's language, beautiful language. The world drowned in the white glare of, in the world drowned in the white, in the white glare of an immortal gaze. The world drowned in the white glare of an immortal gaze. What is that immortal gaze? Don't be scared. You are that immortal gaze. You are that consciousness, which is the whose white glare the world shines in. 
and the world is nothing apart from that white flare. Alright. Having done all this, now what? The question comes, so then what will I do next? The non-doer, the teacher laughs at this and says, this is the first sign of an unlikely person. The very fact that you think that you will have something to do after this. <laughs> Doing something means individuality. Okay, done. I had a to-do list. Be, become enlightened. I have become enlightened. I have become a Buddha, an enlightened person. Now what do I do? Buddha already invented Buddhism. What's left for me to do? Do I invent a meism? <laughs> no. The very fact that you think something is to be done is in identification with body-mind. It's from our perspective here and now we think that, okay, I become enlightened. Now for all eternity I'll get bored. What do I do? So he says, no, it's not like that. Katritva, technical terms, Katritva, agent ship disappears. It's like realizing, I am the screen on which the movie is playing. If I'm Harry Potter in the movie, I have a lot of things to do. Plenty of things, so to fight evil and all of those things have to be done. But if I'm the screen in which the movie is playing, what do I have to do? Nothing. Nothing. Have fun. Enjoy the movie. Yeah. You are Harry Potter and everybody else. The entire movie is you yourself. Entirety of samsara becomes a movie for you. And then you still have the body-mind, remember. That particular body-mind. Now that's the body-mind of the, what might be called an enlightened person. But the enlightened person does not think of himself or herself as an enlightened person. Truly speaking, what are you? Honestly speaking, you will say, I am Brahman. I am not a knower of Brahman. I am not an enlightened person. I am the reality. I am not a person who knows reality. Now has to do something with that. No. So what is the answer? The answer is very interesting. Jadavat Lokamachari. Jadavat Lokamachari. In the world, behave like the unenlightened. Live like the unenlightened. Live like the unenlightened. Enlightened means live like an ordinary person. Be most unexceptional. It is the an unenlightened person who thinks the enlightened person must be something like this. I am Brahman. You're just a miserable creature. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not that way. My Brahma who to This is the sign of ignorance. I am Brahman. You are just. I am enlightened and you are unenlightened. No, 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 not even that. The moment a person says, I am enlightened, the person is not enlightened. I often quote Nisargadatta, somebody praised Nisargadatta, you are a Brahma Jnani, a knower of Brahman. And he came down hard on that person and said, you are insulting me. How can it be an insult? It's the highest praise in our culture that you are enlightened, you are a knower of Brahman. He said, I am not a knower of Brahman, I am Brahman. Knower of Brahman presupposes body-mind of a person who knows Brahman. That is not correct. The Kena Upanishad puts it this way. Avijyatam vijanatam, vijyatam avijanatam. For the, uh, for the persons who say they know, it is unknown. For the persons who, to whom it is known, they will say that I do not know it. That means it is not known as an object. It is not a pramana. Yasya matam tasya matam matam yasya navelasa. The one who says it cannot be known objectively, amatam, that person knows. The person who says, I have known it, done, enlightened, not known, unenlightened. Ken Upanishad says that. But that means for the 
Vedantic student at the most advanced level. Not for the person in the street who says, oh, Brahman, I don't know, who's that guy? So is he enlightened? No, no, he's not enlightened. It's for the person who has attended all the Mandukya classes and says, I do not know Brahman as an object. Correct, then you know. Jaravat Loka Machare, behave like the unenlightened. What will you do? Whatever you've been doing. Do I need to start teaching Vedanta? If you like. If you don't, you need not. Somebody asked Raman Maharshi, is it necessary to become a monk like you and to become a housewife, maybe? He said, no, mother, it's not necessary. Then why are you sitting in a cave? Well, she's sitting in a cave wearing a diaper. <laughs> well, he didn't, she didn't say that. <laughs> why are you sitting in a cave? He's wearing a lion cloth, so we're sitting in a cave. He said, that is my karma, mother. Your karma is that you are born in that situation, you're working in the kitchen. That sounds all right. You can. Both of us can be equally enlightened. There is a verse which is popular, strangely enough, it's popular among monks in the Himalayas about realization, enlightenment. Generally not shared, I'll tell you for the first time. Um, it goes like this. There's, there's slightly objectionable part at the beginning. I'll tell you why it's not shared also. It goes like this. Krishna bhogi shukas tyagi nripaujanaka raghavo vasishtha karma nishthascha sarvete jnanina samaha Krishna, Rama, Janaka and Vasishtha. Who is Rama? The incarnation of Vishnu. Who is Krishna? The incarnation of Vishnu, the God, the incarnation of God. Shuka, the great sage, the epitome of a monk, the highest enlightened person, all renouncing, world renouncing. Vasishta, the great sage who was the ritualist, all Vedic rituals he would do. Now it says, the verse goes, that's why the beginning is, is a little objectionable, people might get annoyed. Krishna bhogi. Krishna is a householder who enjoys all the pleasures of the world. Why? Because the story goes, he had 16,000 wives. So, the very number itself shows it, but <laughs> some other meaning to it. The gopis of Vrindavan, they're supposed to be 16,000 in number, and they were all, they are all said, said to be the lovers of Krishna. So that's why Krishna is called the bhogi. But what does it mean? See, there's a Vedantic interpretation. There are many interpretations. One interpretation is the gopis were all devotees of Krishna. Another interpretation is Vedantic interpretation. We generally, actually it's been calculated, I found in a psychology text, discrete, we have in a, in a waiting day 16,000 discrete thoughts. Approximately. 16,000 repetitive, but each thought can be individually identified. Approximately 16,000 thoughts. There's a calculation like that. Which means, if all the thoughts are about Krishna, so those thoughts are the gopis, which are about Krishna. Each thought is about Krishna. So that's one interpretation. Anyhow, but because the way the verse is stated, Krishna is the enjoyer of the world, bhogi. That's why some people might be annoyed. So that's why it's not generally... But it's popular among monks. I heard it in the Himalayas. What does it mean? Krishna, though he appears to be a bhogi. Uh, Sukadeva. He appears to be the greatest tyari. He has only a line cloth, nothing else in the world. And Janaka, the king Janaka, and Ramachandra, both are Ripo, they are kings. They are engaged in the affairs of the world. They are very busy people, powerful people. And Vasishta, the great sage, he's a ritualist, all the time performing puja and havan and all of those rituals, Vedic rituals. 
all of them are absolutely the same as Gyanis, as enlightened people. Their realization is exactly the same. Does somebody have more realization or less realization? No, more realization or less realization. Brahma Jnana, the full enlightenment is present in all of them. Which shows, what should I do after an enlightenment? Choose. Keep on living. Whatever is the karma of this particular body and mind in which you have attained enlightenment, that karma will continue. Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna put it this way. Yeah. He said a clerk was put in prison. Then he was released from prison. So when the clerk is released from prison, uh, what will he do? Sri Ramakrishna put it this way. Will he, uh, will he uh, dance the jig or will he go back to being a clerk? In, in Bengali, he'll go back to being what he is. And Holy Mother put it in a more gentle way. She said, after enlightenment, does it mean the person grows two hearts? <laughs> you realize your oneness with Brahman, that everything is Brahman. That's what you realize. Everything else will continue. And somebody says, oh, I won't be special. <laughs> the moment you think, moment you want speciality, that's a sign of not being enlightened. That's one of the clearest signs that I want some speciality here. Here, this body. At least my face should shine, you know, with an unearthly light, a halo, or something. I should have a like you know, like MA, BA, PhD, and then enlightened qualification. In Sanskrit, this is called vishesha, something that sets you apart from everything else. Then you are not enlightened. What is Brahman? That from which nothing else is apart. Everything is the same to Brahman. Because Brahman is the same in every being, in everything. In the highest and the lowest. In the sinner and the saint. Everywhere Brahman is the same. And you are Brahman. Why would you want speciality for one body and mind if you think you are Brahman? If you have realized you are Brahman. Swami Premananda, whose life we are going to speak about on this Sunday. A very strange episode where he goes to Swami Shivananda and says to Swami Shivananda, oh, enlightened person, tremendous heights. Brother, why do we even wear these ochre robes, this gave up this, this cloth, this shirt? Why should we not dress like ordinary men? You see, even this is unbearable to him, to show any kind of speciality. I remember so touching, when he died, Premanandaji, in his room, he was the manager of Belluba, the entire, the main monastery, the manager, so he's in charge of everything, all the money and everything. When he died, they found he had two shirts, one on his body and one in his little bag. He had a little half bag, like they call it a jhola. He had one more shirt. He had one pair of slippers, one change of a cloth, and a Bhagavad Gita. That was his entire position in the world. So, no question of any kind of separation. One monk, whom I like for his, he's a very intellectual, talented person. He's written a number of, uh, he writes novels. So, <laughs> And the main monastery told him, you can't publish it under your name because, <laughs> so he has to, the poor person, he has to write it under the, but they are very successful. They, pub, they are published by multinational corporations, Harper, Collins and others. So he said, I'm going to write the next novel is going to be about this person who is enlightened, who behaves <coughs> like just everybody else, and just like an ordinary person, as if he's ordinary, but inside he has just sheer contempt for everybody. I said... That's not the sign of an enlightened person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to show outside, I'm just like you, but inside I think, oh, I know Brahman, you don't. That's not the sign of an enlightened <coughs> person. That's just the opposite. Jadavat loka machare. 
behave like the unenlightened, live like the unenlightened. So the question is, I come to you, what should I do? Answer is, whatever comes your way, do it. From your point of view, Brahman makes no difference. From the karma of that particular body and mind, things will keep coming. As things keep coming, so do it. There's a beautiful verse. The enlightened person sort of glides through life, he says, with a smile. As duties keep coming, he discharges them with a smile. The whole the series of verses is with a smile. The two questions, wait. Yes. Who is enlightened? The one who thought he was unenlightened. Who is that? That is Brahman. But Brahman is always enlightened. Brahman is not, need not be enlightened. Brahman is beyond enlightenment. See, the question is, this question comes around. If you think about it carefully, this question will come to you. And Shankaracharya, I'll give you Shankaracharya's answer. And two or three times this question has come in the commentaries. Once, somebody, 13th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, somebody asked Shankara, uh, whose ignorance? Basically the same question. Whose ignorance? Because then the answer will be yours. But you said, I am Brahman. All this time you have been teaching me I am Brahman. Brahman can't have ignorance. So, or if I have ignorance, then I am a jiva who is not Brahman then. So who is ignorance? And Shankara's answer is very interesting. He says, why are you asking me? He says, because I don't know. Oh, then you are ignorant. You have got ignorance. But I am Brahman. Then you don't have ignorance. Why are you asking <laughs> Basically, you know what the problem is? The problem is this. The jiva, the individual being. Brahman is not a paradox. The jiva is a paradox. It's because of error that Brahman thinks of itself, feels itself, or acts like a jiva. There is no jiva as such. It is yeah, Brahman as That's alone. the question I'm going to come if, like, Why jiva? There's no jiva. Hmm? So why all this? No need. If you realize there's no jiva, okay. but if you feel like a jiva, ah, then everything becomes relevant. You have to keep coming to class. <laughs> but if you don't feel like a jiva, you feel I'm Brahman, you're free. Bra the jiva is a paradox. And anything that's a product of error is a paradox. That snake, it's a paradox. It's not there. Then how did you see it? So the jiva realizes its true nature. It's Brahman, <coughs> yes. Aham Brahmasmi. If that is the case, then when that realization comes, yes. why does the jiva have any use for what is not real? Has no use at all. Either the jiva gets absorbed into its nature as Brahman, in which case the body drops off at 21 days, so externally you will see that person does not come back again. Or the jiva may enjoy this world as Brahman. When you realize it as a movie, why would you at all have it? It's unreal. Well, it's it's the movie, you're enjoying the movie as a movie. The whole word enjoyment is kind of a difficult word to grasp in this context. No, not really. Because we're thinking of Brahman as some kind of awesome, static, absolute. But Brahman is also this person. Brahman is also this world. Without Brahman, when we look at this world, it is samsara and terrible. When we realize this world is Brahman, that's the third stage we are talking about. Vittin Brahmamain, who all the sages and Brahma and all, they are all engaged in the world, doing everything in the world, realizing every bit of it is Brahman. You can engage, you can engage in pottery, knowing that all of it is, is, is clay. But you can design beautiful parts, that's just joy, wonderful. So that's the very nature of philosophy. Don't think of Brahman only as an absolute and not this. Then you set up a, again a dichotomy between mm. an awesome, distant, impersonal, cold, absolute. Then why this hot, messy world? 
But this hot blessing world is the light shining from forth from that. It's not different. Brahman itself is engaged in all this right now. Right now, it is Brahman. It's after all, this is Brahman. The difference is between knowing it, realizing it, and not realizing. Not realizing, suffering. Realizing it, joy and transcendence of suffering. That's the thing. In one of the first few classes that I attended, you uh, also told me that uh, enlightenment is the end of karma. So once you finish the life in which you reach enlightenment, that's also the end of karma then? Yes. Because the end of karma, so no more new lives will be there for you. New, more, new bodies and lives. Alright. Jaragat Loka Macharit, one more thing. So this person, there are many descriptions. This person behaves... Can I go on for a few minutes? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. This person behaves um, as necessary. They say, um, with women he will behave, suppose he's, he's a monk, uh, like Sri Ramakrishna. With women he behaves just like one of them. The women devotees of Sri Ramakrishna would say, we never felt that he was not a woman. With young boys like Narendra and others when they used to come to him, he would joke, make fun, play with them, just like, like a child. And they say that when a great philosopher comes, he's sitting down and talking about um, uh, Brahman and Maya and Jnana and Smriti and, and um, you know, all the, uh, the epistemology and metaphysics. With whoever comes, that person seems to reflect that, that like, Jaram, uh, Jaravatachar, it means he acts according to the situation. is perfectly at home with everybody in the universe. Because everybody in the universe is you yourself. One Swami, John Swami was referring to earlier, he would start his discourses by saying, Mere Atma Swarup. Oh, all of you who are none other than I myself. You are my, my very own. You are, you are, my, you are I. So, I'm speaking to myself. So, that's how you, the person lives. One comment on the word, exact word which is used. Instead of saying unenlightened, the word used is Jada. In Jada, J. Jada means ignorant or insentient. The two words in Sanskrit, Chaitanya and Jara. You see, it's important to notice this. Jara means inert or unconscious. In Sanskrit, in Indian language, it's unconscious. And Chaitanya means consciousness itself. Now, when Sri Ramakrishna would teach, he would bless people, be enlightened. That's how it's translated. But the actual word he used would say, or he would say, Chaitanya. He would use this, this word, Chaitanya. If you actually translate it literally, I think not, not translating literally, you're missing a powerful message there. Literally, if you translate it, it means be pure consciousness. But you are already pure consciousness. So what it means is be awakened to your real nature as pure consciousness. It is very casually translated as be enlightened. Sri Ramakrishna blessed everybody, be enlightened. That's all right. But what is the exact language he used? Chaitanya hope. It means, Chaitanya means consciousness. Hope means be. Be consciousness. But you are already consciousness according to Vedanta. That means awaken to your nature as pure consciousness. And what is Jara? Not conscious. Unconscious. So the table and chair are in casual language, in Indian languages. They are said to be Jara. Living beings are said to be Chaitanya. And non-living things are said to be Jara. So, unenlightenment is taken as not conscious. But how can you not be conscious? We are all conscious. 
we regard ourselves as conscious beings, number one. We experience consciousness right now. And number two, according to Vedanta, we are pure consciousness right now. So what does it mean to say that we are Jara? It means we are not awake to our nature as pure consciousness. So we are like not conscious. We are like body-mind. We think ourselves as body-mind. Let me finish this. We think of ourselves as body-mind, which is not pure consciousness. That's all we know about ourselves. Though we are pure consciousness, completely having forgotten that, we identify ourselves as body-mind. This is Jara. This is what we think ourselves as. So this is the word used for not enlightened. So not enlightened, literally, it's a very Vedantic use of the term. Not aware of your real nature as pure consciousness. And enlightened would be Chaitanya. Awake to your real nature as consciousness. I remember once Sri Ramakrishna's nephew, Ridhan. He saw, he was a very nice character, interesting character. He saw people all around getting spiritual experiences, ecstasies and wonderful upliftment, sublime feelings. Uh, sometimes experiences of God and he said, I'm not getting anything I'm just that same old guy so he, he catches Sri Ramakrishna, uncle he used to call him uncle, uncle will I not get anything kept on pestering him and uh, so one day Sri Ramakrishna said, alright if it's the mother's will you will get something and he, I think he touched him or something and that one touch of Sri Ramakrishna Ram, he, he felt he, he broke into a shout you know, in great delight Oh, uncle, we are not ordinary beings. We are beings of light. Let us go from, from country to country and awaken the masses, you know, the people suffering in the world. Let us awaken them, let us enlighten them, let us go from nation to nation. And Sri Ramakrishna said, <coughs> Hush, you fool. I, I get so many of these experiences every day and I keep quiet and you get only one of this and you're making such a fuss. And then he touched him and said, be jada. Be literally unconscious, but be not. Don't be awake to your real nature. And then he wept. Brijana wept. Oh, uncle, what have you done, man? Back, back to earth again. I'm the same person. So that is the language. Jaravat acharit. Being awakened to your real nature. Question is, what do I do now? Being awakened to your real nature. Be absolutely like the ordinary. Not internally. Internally you are fully awake. You are completely lit up inside. You are happy. You are transcended sorrow. Don't try to show anything externally. The moment you try to show anything externally. Why Jnani? Jnani it's a basic contradiction in principle. If I am Brahman. How can I be special? I must be the most universal of all things in the world. And one Swami said. Even for a yogi. The yogi who wants to show his speciality, that yogi, he will not get samadhi. Yogi wants samadhi. Bhakta, the one who wants to, the devotee of God, the one who loves God and surrenders to God, path of devotion, the devotee who wants to show his speciality uh, will lose, with that, to that level will lose devotion to God. Will, will, will be reduced in, diminished in, in devotion to God. One... Because I, I got all these things, I must finish it today. Because of this, uh, how, to, how to live in the world. In Skanda Purana, there is a beautiful story, very instructive, of a great Paramahamsa, um, who was enlightened, Avadhuta. He comes to this village, 
and um, this lady where he was getting his arms. So it is a wandering monk, but he's enlightened. He's a wandering monk. He gets his arms from a particular poor person's house, and he found the lady of the house weeping. I asked mother, "What is what's wrong?" Oh, my husband was the potter. He died, and who will look after these little children? Who will feed them? Who will make the pots and sell them in the market? And this great enlightened soul, Abhijit, he says, "Why, mother? I will do it. I'm here. You, sir, you're going to do it? Yes." And off he goes, collects clay, and he brings it, and he wets it with water, and he, uh, you know, kneads it into the clay necessary, and he shapes it into nice pots, bakes them, puts them on the donkey, and takes them off the market to sell. Gets money and feeds this uh, widow and her children. After some time, his disciples come to know of this. They come and say, "Holy sir, what are you doing? You become a potter." And he says, "It is all good. When I was a wandering monk, it was all good. When I am a potter now, it's all good. I am the same Brahman." Which is little sh shocking for it's like a holy wandering monk becoming like a householder. No, for that person, it makes no difference. Yes. Bharat, when I think of an ordinary person, comes to my mind someone who is normally getting angry, normally feeling jealous, normally fighting with others. That's ordinariness. So not that kind. Not that kind. Ordinariness does not mean become a samsari again. Means don't try to show anything special. Fully enlightened person, like a nameplate. No. Be, so the potter remains a potter. The king remains a king. A sage remains a sage. A warrior remains a warrior. Maybe. Yes. Got a question? Somebody has a question. Taoism, they say, enlightenment is not a day. It's not a destination. Yes. It's a daily state of being. Yes. Did you see? It's not a thing to be attained. It yeah, is the reality. Most of us think it's something to be, it's, it's like the destination, it's the end point. It's not the end. Once you reach that end, you realize that it's the reality in which you live all the time. You are living in a dream, in a dream earlier. Um, let me finish this. Hold on to the questions. By the way, we need to, in this class we can keep the questions coming. I got a complaint about the Gita class the people who listen to the recordings. So the Gita class, what we're going to do is, we're going to hold the questions till the end, and the people are going to come there and ask the questions so that the questions are also recorded. There are a lot of people who listen to the recordings across the world, and they are annoyed because they can't hear the questions. And they said, don't allow the questions in between the class. Finish the class and then allow the questions. But this is a study group, so questions should keep coming. Um, okay, what else did I want to say in this? Jaravat Loka Macharit, Jaravat Loka Macharit. Mm, yes, whoever speciality, <coughs> whatever one one uh, thinks of, you know, what one gives importance, that's speciality. So one monk told this story. There was this multi-millionaire, very rich person, who was interested in Vedanta, and he would study Vedanta, and there would be a group of people around him who would listen to Vedanta. This was a long time ago, and this monk also he used to go there, and a great monk at that time. Um, non-dualist teacher. He would also come. This monk said, even when the great teacher non-dualism a monk would come to that discussion, this teacher, he would not get up. Because the ego is the ego of money. I am rich. But very interestingly, one day the talk was going on and somebody said, the richest person in India at that time, Gansham Dyas Billa. So he is coming to the, that place, that town, not even that house. And this man, he gets up quickly and says, wait, will be. He goes, washes his face and puts on his shoes and off he goes to receive this person who is much richer than him. Because money is important to this person. And not, 
Similarly, for a knowledgeable person, that person is, uh, for that person, a more knowledgeable person, a person with greater degree, oh, a, much, a wonderful person. About sadhus, uh, I've seen in Uttarakhand, the more austere, the more austere you are, the more worthy you are of respect. So, uh, I remember once I went to meet this Naga Sanyasi, who was sitting in bitter cold, even colder than this, outside, wearing only a lion cloth. Usually they are completely naked, but this guy was wearing a lion cloth. And he was sitting outside, near a fire, on the bank of the Ganges in Gangotri. And he saw me, I was more or less dressed like this, and had a cap, and I didn't have a shirt, but I had a shawl around myself. The first thing he asked me was, What's all this you have put on yourself? All this silliness. Take it off. Silliness means warm clothes. Take it off and sit down here. I would have got pneumonia if I had to do that. I don't know how he does it. They have techniques for generating internal body heat. But see, for him it's a prestige to be naked in cold. So, whatever speciality you have, one tends to stick to that. Brahman is non-special. is universal. Jadavat Loka Macharit. Be like the most ordinary of people. What else did I want to say? Okay, so this is the second thing he says. The first thing he talked about, the qualifications. Second thing is continuously keeping your mind on Brahman. We said, learned about three stages of that and how to behave in the world. So this is, we've already got advice, post-enlightenment. So you are becoming very close. You are close to post-enlightenment advice. Or oh, the story which I told you earlier, many times earlier, but let me just share, share this. The completely, this wrong idea about enlightenment, what you said about being a destination. You said it, fine. This young man I saw in the Himalayas, he was sitting under a tree and reading Ashtavakra. And he was a um, guy from Wall Street here in New York. And uh, he was studying, he looked unhappy. So he's gone up to the Himalayas, picked up the highest, literally the highest, highest place in the world, the Himalayas, and the highest book of non-dualism, <laughs> and sitting under the tree. Why is he unhappy? He says, I'm not enlightened yet, and I've taken two months sabbatical from my job. I have to go back and join my company. It's a really good job in a multinational company. And I'm not enlightened yet. And I sort of mumbled and said, no, it will take some time. No, it's not like that. It will take it slow. He said, I don't like that attitude, Swami. So I said, good for him. But the thing is, it's a to-do list. One, two, three, four. By the end of the vacation in India, be enlightened. And then it's back to the Wall Street job. That's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, just a follow-up question to his question about, you know, anger, jealousy, you know, and being ordinary person versus yeah. the enlightened. So you said that the enlightened person, you know, you don't have a name tag or you yeah. have to say that. But if somebody you know, if these things go down yes. internally, then yes. you, you you to assess whether you are on the right track or not. Yes. Are those the things that you would... Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Krishna is asked this question by Arjuna. That how do I know a person is enlightened? What is the nature of enlightenment? Krishna gives second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. We'll come to it soon enough. Um, it is says, Chitta Pragnasya Kamamash. What's the definition of... Look at the word used there. Of settled wisdom of stabilized knowledge, <coughs> not only enlightenment, but stabilized enlightenment, then what, the, what is the person like? We keep saying, I get it, but I lose it immediately. Yeah. The person who does not lose it, who gets it and is completely comfortable in that. 
then what kind of person? And all of these things, the desires, he transcends desires, anger, greed, lust, these are all transcended. Internally, the person is night and day different from us. Night and day different. And therefore, the person cannot keep himself or herself hidden. It's very easily obvious. And this is a tremendous attractive power people will get. Usually people are pulled to that. It's automatic. Even if the person tries to keep, keep uh, hidden. The person is so different in daily activities. The fragrance of that enlightenment. You, your mind will be uplifted in the very vicinity of that person. You can't help it. They're incredible. Um, so, the next two verses are there. 37 and 38. And I hope to touch 37 today, but anyway, so to, next time we'll do 37 and 38, very powerful verses. 37 is slightly disturbing because he says, remember, these are books, as I keep saying, these are the top of the Himalayan peaks and usually a part of a monastic culture. So the 37th verse will be, topic is what do I do to become enlightened now? What do I do in life? So 37 verse is a clear indication, a clear advice, become a monk. <laughs> so that's the 37th verse. At least month like internally. Yeah. 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 Yeah.